The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 18. We are starting this week a new series. It is called Spiritual Disciplines, Glorifying God Through Humble Obedience. Now, some may think that we are trying to commit uh, ministry suicide by having a series uh, in 2018 with the words discipline and obedience right in the title, like right where people can see it, right? Uh, some, some of you know that, that common wisdom of our day says that this series should be called uh, five Steps to Find Your Happy Place, or be based on a movie or movies if you really want anybody to pay any attention to it. Um, so, some would say that we should package the series that way, and then we can sneak some truths about spiritual discipline and obedience. We can sneak them in there like when people uh, wrap their dog's heartworm pill in bologna and try to feed it to them. You ever seen that happen? Right? So, but what's the problem with that? Here's the problem. Some dogs eat the bologna in the pill, but some dogs, and I've seen this happen, like you put it in their mouth and they're smart. Somehow, like they can tell the pills in there and they start doing that thing, you know, and then so they eat, somehow eat the bologna and out comes the pill, right? So they, the intention that you had did not happen, right? So we, we want to avoid that. And, and I understand what people mean when they, when they talk like that, and, and even that some others do that. I'm not criticizing. Um, and I do understand that some people will recoil initially at a straightforward series title like this. It just put it, puts it right out there. However, though I understand that, I also believe there are those who understand that the ultimate goal of human existence is to bring glory to the God who made us. I also believe the Holy Spirit can cause a supernatural curiosity even in those who don't yet believe that. I believe the Holy Spirit can cause people to seek after the truth about God without us wrapping it in baloney. Amen. <clears throat> 1 Timothy 4.7, uh, Paul admonishes Timothy to discipline yourselves for the purpose of godliness. This is going to be a guiding principle for us through this series. Now, before we get into the specifics about spiritual disciplines, um, I want to ask you one question. And that's going to determine whether or not this series is life-giving and encouraging or whether it's more of a painful drudgery for you. I want you to really think about the answer to this question. What do you want to be? What do you want to be? I decided to skip the end of that, which is when you grow up, so we didn't waste time with some of you being offended, right? I could just see some of you going, what do you mean when I grow up, right? Hold on. But I'm basically asking you the same thing we often ask children. What do you want to be? What is the first and thus probably deepest desire that rises from your heart when I ask you that question? What do you want to be? For some, it would be, I, I want to be loved. That would be the first thing they would think of. For some, they would say, I want to be successful. For some, they would just say, I want to be safe and comfortable. Many, I think, would say, I want to be happy. That would probably be pretty common. 
I would like to submit to you that for those who have experienced the unmatched splendor and beauty of the grace of Christ, our first and deepest answer should be, I want to be like Jesus. I'm going to qualify that for you. This term in 1 Timothy, godliness, he said to discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, it's really synonymous with another word we use, which is Christ-likeness. Because, and, and, and why, why can I say that? Okay, so Paul tells Timothy to discipline himself for the purpose of godliness. We, we talk about Christ-likeness, being like Christ. We know that in Hebrews and other places, the Bible tells us very clearly that Jesus was the perfect expressed image of God. That basically, and Jesus said many times, People would say, well, show us the Father. He'd say, how long have I been with you? Do you not yet understand? You've seen me. You've, you've learned from me. You've heard my words, and so you're hearing the words of the Father. You've seen me react to situations, so you see that's the way the Father would react because we believe that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are Trinitarian in their nature, that they are one God with three distinct persons, co-equal, co-eternal, co-powerful. And so Christ-likeness and godliness are one and the same. It basically means that in our thoughts and in our words, actions, our integrity, and our character, we are growing more and more like Jesus. Discipline yourselves for the purpose of godliness. We want to be growing to be more like Jesus. Now, most of those other desires that I stated above, I don't want to villainize those. Most of them are fine. Uh, I would say some of them even flow out of being Christ-like. I would, I would give you happiness as an example, uh, we are promised joy in Christ, which is different than happiness, but I, I firmly believe and have experiential evidence that seeking to be Christ-like leads to greater levels of even happiness in my life than any other pursuit ever has. Am, am I alone in that? No? There's one other person here that's been happy because they've been trying to be like Jesus. Amen. And they were scared to say it, so hallelujah, we're doing good. We're starting off. Spiritual disciplines, hallelujah. Come on, y'all. Let's do this together, all right? Amen. I know it's cold out there, and you've probably been sniffling, but God's Word is exciting, and it's going to breathe life into us today. So the whole point, the premise of that is, if I was to ask you, what do you want to be? Ultimately, to be like Jesus, I think, should be the core answer of every person that has experienced, that has tasted and seen the Lord is good through the grace of Christ. Uh, Christians desires should align with God's desires. This is the second reason I would say that uh, when someone asks us, what do you want to be? To be like Jesus should be our first answer. Because if we belong to Jesus, his desires should become our desires. Our desires should become his desires. Uh, And he has already said that what he wants for us is for us to be like him. Romans 8.29 says this, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So my whole point here is, God has given us his thoughts about it. What should we want to be? What is is God's vision? I'm trying to give you a vision for what God sees and, and cultivating you in excitement for that, because I think most of us don't see ourselves like Jesus. Most of us are very aware of all the ways we are not like Jesus. And the typical human tendency in this really weird way is not to see the delineation or the difference between us and Jesus and go, okay, that's something for me to commit to prayer and to ask for God's anointing and and help to, to 
work through that gap and to get closer to Jesus, oftentimes we just settle into an identity of, this is the way I am. Ultimately, we need to, by faith, grab hold of the vision that God has for us, that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. God's vision for us is that we would look like Jesus. Okay? What does all this have to do with spiritual disciplines? Like, did, did you get off track or what happened? I didn't, I promise. This, it, it, this has everything to do with spiritual disciplines because if we desire to be godly, if we desire to be like Jesus, we will then desire to know what it means to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. See, if you don't have a point and a purpose and a vision for why you would be learning what spiritual disciplines are and then asking God to help you to walk those out, if there's not a purpose for that, if there's not a vision of you ultimately seeing what God sees, which is this potential for him to shape and mold and form you into the image of his son, if you don't know where you're going, then spiritual disciplines will always, every single time, be a drudgery and they will be something that turns into a legalistic mess and it'll just be law and it won't be life-giving and it won't be exciting. But if we know that we're participating in a process that God is working in us and that these spiritual disciplines are a part of a means of God giving us his grace and that growth towards coming into the fullness of the image of Christ, then we can be excited about where we're headed. And we can have a vision for why this matters. And we don't, we don't just do certain things for the sake of doing those things or because we know that they're a check mark, but we see that there's a, a point, right? Do you, do you remember when you were a kid and... I've, I've, as I've, my confession is I've been a bad parent sometimes, and my kids will say, why about this certain such and thing? And, and to my credit, it's probably like the 300th why of that day, and so sometimes it's like, because I told you. Full stop, right? Period. That's all you need to know, because Dad said. Right? <laughs> Move along. But that's not a good answer, right? Because humans, we... Because God has put his image in us, we, we have the ability to think and we want to understand why we're doing what we're doing, right? And so if somebody just stands up and says, well, you're supposed, to, you're supposed to pray and you're supposed to fast, you're supposed to read the word, you're supposed to be in community with other believers, these are, these are the spiritual disciplines and, and you're just supposed to do it, so do it. Like, ultimately, if God says, because I said so, like, that should be good enough for us, right? And, and to some degree, it needs to be. But God didn't leave it there. He's a better dad than I am sometimes because he's given us very full, beautiful, like open-eyed reasons for why these spiritual disciplines should be a part of our life. And it's not something he just lays on us and says, get it done, I'll be back to check. He's involved in the process the entire time. He's by the power of his spirit giving us what we need to be able to walk these things out because oftentimes they are not things we would do naturally or on our own. Amen. We need to be clear at the outset, spiritual disciplines will not earn us grace from God. Grace is the free gift that comes by faith in the perfect life, substitutionary death, and triumphant resurrection of Jesus Christ, by which we are saved and redeemed. None of what we're going to talk about throughout this series is going to earn you more grace. Grace is a freely given gift that comes by faith alone in Christ alone. And I think most of the time people know that, but in the way we talk about certain spiritual disciplines, we can, we can mistakenly give people the sense that they're going to 
get maybe more favor with God, or he might love them a little better if they can do these things faithfully. There can be no higher expression of God's love for you than the perfect, sinless Lamb of God bleeding on a cross on your behalf. There's, he can't tell you in any greater, more splendid, beautiful terms, I love you, than to send Christ to die for you. And so his love for you is full and complete. It's expressed in Christ, and it's been given to you freely by grace. And that's received just by trusting him. However, the things we're going to be talking about, this, these spiritual disciplines, they come, once you do understand that and you do receive that beautiful free gift of grace, these spiritual disciplines flow out of that and they, the, the hope is that they become a desire for us because not only do we, do we see the value that they have standing alone, but we see the value they have in this overall process of us being conformed into the image of Christ. We, do we want to be like Jesus? I do. I want to be like Jesus. I know I have the microphone and you can't answer, but I'm just going to say it right now. I want to be like him. I want to be more like him tomorrow than I am today. I want to be more patient and kind and more loving. I want to, be, I want to walk in truth in every single aspect of my life. I want to have integrity in every moment, whether people are looking or not. I want to be like Jesus in the way I speak, in the way I treat people, even in the way I think. I want to be like Jesus. I'm going to need his help for that. And part of the help he's given us is not just his empowering grace, but also certain disciplines, certain things that are a part of this process. And so uh, that's his will for us. He's made it clear. None of the rest of what we're going to talk about throughout this series is going to matter if we don't at least have some degree of desire. And I'm hoping to cultivate in you a, a conviction at least that our greatest desire. It's okay to have other desires, but what is greatest when it comes down to what do you want to be? At the top of that list should be, I want to be like Jesus. If you're a computer programmer, praise God. Part of your desire is, I want to be a great computer programmer. If you're somebody that is in the medical field and you want to be great at your job, if you're an artist, if you're a student, whatever you're doing, if you have a desire to be really good at what you're doing, you're a craftsman of some kind. You work in the trades. You want to be the best guy on the team when it comes to fixing what you fix. Those desires aren't bad but they should be submitted to and come up under that greatest desire of I want to be like Jesus. You want to be the best handyman the world's ever seen? You want to, you want to be the best Christ-like handyman the world has ever seen, right? The best artist. If you're a mother and you don't work outside the home and you have a desire to, to be the, the best example of Jesus to your kids that you possibly can as a mama, that's beautiful, but that desire can't come above the desire to be like Jesus because when it does then we prioritize whatever it takes to... And, and here's the thing. Have, have, you seen, have you seen people willing to dedicate time and energy and effort, extreme amounts, to be good at something? Have you seen somebody willing to practice a whole lot, right? Whether it's a musician or, or it is an artist or it's a, uh, somebody in some, some arena of sports or whatever it is or a profession, there are, there are people that are willing to train for years, right, to be able to bake the perfect loaf of bread or get their golf score down or whatever the thing is, right, that they care about. And it's because they have a vision of where they want to go. They, 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 they have a desire of what they want to be. And I think sometimes we have a lack of, of passion for pursuing the basic spiritual disciplines that come in following Christ because we, we lose track of the vision. We don't have a vision of where we want to go, what we want to be. 
Thankfully, we have a crystal clear picture in Christ of where we should want to be going and who we want to be. And so that's what this is all about. That's what we're headed towards. And that's why these things matter. We're not going to spend several weeks just beating you up about uh, stuff you're not doing or not doing enough. I want to keep in front of you this overall vision of being like Jesus and seeing these spiritual disciplines as a means of participating in that process. Ultimately, the work of becoming like Christ is a work of the Holy Spirit. We can't do that. Us participating by, by, by faithfully walking out and having discipline in our lives, that, that's not hap- making the internal work that is necessary to be conformed into the image of Christ happen. We can't do it. That is the work of the Lord alone. However, right, there's this false dichotomy that gets set up sometimes. Like, okay, being saved is by grace alone. Um, any... Any real growth or like the internal change that needs to happen in me for me to be Christ-like, that's, that's a work of the Spirit. And so sometimes it's like, okay, so if those are true, then my job is to just slide into neutral and go into autopilot. And it's hard for us to understand that, yes, ultimately all change of heart and mind comes down to work done by the power of the Spirit. And that's our only hope. But we are also invited to be a part of that process. And... Uh, We'll talk more about that as we go, but sometimes it's, it's hard to sort those things out, and we end up in one ditch or the other. Sometimes you got people that just forget that ultimately it's up to the Holy Spirit, and they think they're just going to they're gonna work their way into whatever it is they're hoping to do, and nothing in God's kingdom uh, is going to be accomplished by our effort alone. We are beholden completely and totally to the grace and power of God. I hope you're happy about that, that it doesn't rest on your shoulders, because if it did, uh, I would assume if we were honest, we'd be a lot more discouraged than we are because uh, if left to our own, we tend to mess things up more than make it better. Amen? Uh, the spiritual disciplines we're going to be discussing are not tasks by which we curry favor with God. It's not even a way that we prove allegiance to Him. Primarily, spiritual disciplines are beautiful expressions of the true freedom Jesus purchased for us with His precious blood. These disciplines show that we are free to do things that we would not be able to do if God had not come and intervened in our life. These are things that if we were still enslaved to sin and self without the help of God, these spiritual disciplines wouldn't be things that we would do. Um, and, and, And even if we did by accident or somehow, our motive would be messed up and it wouldn't have the effect, the ultimate glorious effect of us being conformed into the image of Christ. These disciplines also put us in a position to willingly participate in the process of growing to be more like our Savior. If the grace of God to conform and grow us was a mighty wind, these spiritual disciplines would be how we raise our sail and say, I want to go wherever that wind is blowing. You see the difference there? Oftentimes we get messed up and we think these spiritual disciplines we're going to talk about, that that's the wind that's going to push us along. It's not. It's the grace of God. It's the power of God alone that is that propelling force. But we do have a choice whether or not we raise our sail and say, I want to go wherever that wind's blowing. And these spiritual disciplines are part of how we get. Many, many writers that have written on this, they talk about in terms of like channels, that, that by faith we can get in this channel that puts me in a position to receive God's grace, to receive when he's moving, as opposed to if I'm not just doing me, right, whatever that means, uh, that oftentimes I can miss opportunities to participate in what it is God's trying to do in my life and in the life of people around me, in my city, 
in the growth of his kingdom. Uh, all, there's a lot at stake. It's, it's not just our own personal development. It's not just our own personal spiritual growth. It's all that is tied to the mission of God because we believe each person that is saved by grace through faith is called to then be an ambassador of the gospel. So it's not just your own growth that's riding on. Uh, there's other people whose lives and eternities hang in the balance. And so our humble obedience brings glory to God in these things, and it's, it brings uh, help and love and the truth of the gospel to people. And so I'm thankful for all of that. Uh, the last thing I'll say to you before we read these verses uh, is that the spiritual disciplines we're going to be talking about, I, I believe we need them more desperately now than at any other time in the history of mankind. Uh, and part of why I say that is I think we've maybe abandoned them to a greater degree than at any other time in the history of mankind. And so when, when you don't have these things operating in the lives of the church of God, uh, the the lack of power, the lack of passion, the lack of stability, um, the lack of faithfulness, it all just it kind of becomes more in focus. And, and you can see uh, why it is God's asked us to do these things because in the absence of them, you have a church that largely and, and many times is, is anemic and lacks uh, much of what the New Testament describes should be the way that we're conducting ourselves in the world. And so I think we need these. I want to read you a quote by Don Carson uh, along these lines, and it, it, it's going to sort out for us some of the, I think, extremes of the way people think, and, but overall, it's a call to this kind of faith-filled discipline that we're going to be discussing over the next few weeks. Here's what he says. This is uh, D.A. Carson. People do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise and we call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. That was one of my favorite ones there. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves we've been liberated. I want to reread the first part so that you understand everything else he said. His whole point is people don't drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness. That's the whole point here, is taking apart this idea that because we believe that Salvation is by grace alone that growth in, in Christ and growth in his word and growth in his character, that these are all Holy Spirit-initiated things, that that means we have no part to play. And the whole point is, I believe what Don Carson is saying, and, and I, would, I would wholeheartedly agree, is if you just put it in neutral or you leave your sail down on your boat, to use the analogy from earlier, you're not going to drift towards godliness. You're going to drift towards godlessness. Uh, you're going to drift towards uh, lost self-control and call it relaxation. That was the one I was like, oh, man, that, that stung. Thank you, sir. Okay, so we're going to read some scriptures. Hopefully, I've built a case for the need for us to discuss these things, but also uh, that we're not just going to treat ourselves like a pinata over the next several weeks and beat ourselves up, but we're going to be encouraged by the fact that these spiritual disciplines are actually freedom gifts that God has given us uh, that 
when, when we walk in them and participate in them, uh, it leads to joy. And it's, it's not just a duty. So uh, we're in Mark chapter 2. And we're going to start in verse 18. 18 to 20. Two verses, y'all. Come on now. How long can I stretch that out? Any takers? I just see angry faces. I was joking. It won't be that long. Don't challenge him. Don't do it. Don't make eye contact. <laughs> right? Oh, this is fun. Okay. Mark 2, 18. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Praise God for his word. Uh, Part of why I brought you here is the first spiritual discipline we're going to discuss, and I figured since you know, the title is Spiritual Disciplines, Glorifying God Through Humble Obedience. Since we went real straightforward with that and kind of real hard and to the point, I decided to take it easy on you with the first spiritual discipline and decided to start with fasting. Yeah! No, I didn't. I'm taking it right to the hilt, man. Right off the bat. Let's go for it. Honestly, though, this, is, this, was, a, this was a prayer-motivated choice. Of, of all the spiritual disciplines we're going to talk about, honestly, I think uh, we have abandoned fasting in the church uh, largely, and I think it's something we need to return to. And I really believe that understanding it correctly and participating in this spiritual discipline will help us to engage in really vibrant ways with the rest. And so, I'm hoping as we uh, understand it better, remove some of the fear around it, um, that we can come to rejoice in this in this freedom gift that God has given us in fasting. So, uh, here we see in Mark two, right? Somebody that obviously doesn't know who they're talking to yet is questioning Jesus about what his disciples do. I, I think it's funny as I read through. Uh, the Gospels and people, the questions that people are willing to ask Jesus. Like, if you just knew who you were talking to, right? Like, chill out. But they don't, and so they ask him, and, and his answer is, basically, well, the bridegroom's here, we're going to party, but I'm not going to be here eventually, and then they'll fast. And so uh, this is, I brought you here because this is the closest the Bible comes to a command for us, the New Testament Church of God, to fast. Now, let me say this. It, fall, it comes short of a command. We have no biblical command to fast. I would say that we have an a invitation, and what Jesus expresses, I would say, an expectation, and I'll, I'll qualify that even further, but basically, Jesus said here, once the bridegroom's not with them, then my people will fast. And so, I, there may be slight disagreement on this, probably just from people that don't want to fast, but... <laughs> Uh, basically everybody I read said that that what's being described when the bridegroom's not with us is the time between Jesus' ascension, right, where he rose from the dead and ascended to the throne. He's our advocate at the right hand of the Father. Uh, Between then and his return, which is when? Now, right? That would be the church age. Jesus said, when I'm not with them, they'll be fasting then. Okay, so you see in the mind of Christ, he thought we would be fasting. Uh, I'll also give you Matthew 6. Um, Jesus, when teaching about fasting, he says, when you fast, don't be a hypocrite. He says, don't contort your face and let everybody know. He says, you know, put oil on your head, anoint yourself, wash your face. So, because if, if you go around making a big deal about it and trying to get everyone to know so that they clap for you and they're impressed by your incredible level of discipline, he says, 
you're going to receive your reward right then. Whatever little clap you get from people, that's it. That's all that's going to happen. The rest of the blessing, the rest of what could happen through the process of fasting, none of that's going to happen. All you're going to get is some accolades from some jokers that at the end of the day is not going to matter a whole lot. So I would just point these couple things to you as far as the heart of the master as it pertains to it. First of all, he said, when the bridegroom's gone, my people will fast. And he also said in Matthew 6, when you fast, it seems like a strong assumption. Now, it, it comes short of him saying, everybody needs to fast and they need to do it this many times, right? And so that's part of the problem is we, we, we tend to take things like this and we try to make it into a command. But honestly, to me, an invitation is even more beautiful than a command. Uh, an invitation to participate in this grace-filled process of denying our flesh by fasting uh, is even better than if, if God said this is something you, you absolutely have to do. Now, there are things God has said you absolutely have to do, and there's things he said you absolutely cannot do, and uh, I rejoice in those as well because I just, I'm fully sold on the fact that if Jesus says do it, it's good for me, and if he says don't do it, it's bad for me, and he's trying to keep me in joy and out of trouble. Amen? I got real-life experience that proves when I disobey him, it leads to trouble. Things go bad. Amen. I got a witness in the back. I saw a hand go up. Somebody else knows about that. The rest of you are precious lambs that have never done anything, and so you just you don't know yet. But maybe one day you'll come short of the perfection of Christ, and you'll know what I'm talking about. Amen. Okay, so uh, we got those two things. Not a command, but definitely a strong assertion can be made that Jesus expected that his people would be fasting. Okay, there's, there's a lot of misunderstanding about fasting. First of all, it's not at all legalistic. Uh, many times, and I, I don't know if it's just in the past couple decades or if this has gone in waves throughout church history, we get real weird about legalism. We tend to just throw tradition out the window. We, we forget that God is a God who instituted festivals with his people. Uh, you know, you, you had the Feast of Booze, you had the Day of Atonement, you had Passover. God knows that there's something about us you know, I, I wish we were more like this. I wish God could say something to us one time that was all we needed to just obey it forever and never have any less passion about obeying it than the very first time we heard it. But is that true of us? It's not. Typically, we need reminders, and that's so why things like certain holidays, you know, we got Resurrection Day coming up. Easter is the next big one for us. It's good for us to remember on, on kind of a, a clockwork-type calendar basis these things uh, that bring back to our remembrance uh, the goodness of God and, and cause us to rejoice and celebrate them. So uh, fasting, however, is, is not legalistic, just like many, many other traditions are. And some people have, I think, moved away from it because Jesus, he, he scolded the Pharisees for, for the way they fasted. And so they're like, oh, they just say, well, oh, well, they were fasting and Jesus was mad at them, so maybe that's not something I, I need to mess with. But what Jesus was really upset about was that they had made fasting, they had made it legalistic, and they made it about outward appearances, right? You had the one guy, uh, the, the Pharisee in his prayer was saying, oh, God, I'm so glad I fast twice a day, right? And there, there's others throughout church history. Um, I got a lot of respect for John Wesley, and, and even along these lines, ideas of fasting and prayer and spiritual disciplines, I think he was a giant uh, when it comes to these issues. Uh, but he, he was so convinced... Uh, that the church should return to the teachings of the Didache, which is an early church document outside of the scriptures, but uh, it kind of it lays out a lot of early church practice and stuff. I think it's very good. If, look it up online. You can find it for free. It's good for us to read and go through, but it, it is not scripture. But in the Didache, it, it prescribed that Christians should fast Wednesdays and Fridays. That was normative in that time. And so 
John Wesley got to the point he would not appoint anybody uh, to uh, an ordination to ministry in, in uh, Methodism if they did not fast every Wednesday and Friday. And so uh, we can have tendencies to turn beautiful invitations into spiritual discipline, into commands. Um, we could, if I wanted to, I could take the verse in Mark and I could take the verse in Matthew and I could lay that on you because Jesus said, when you fast, and because he said, when the bridegroom's gone, my people will fast, we could try to turn that into a hard, kind of cold steel command. I don't think that's the heart of God about it, and we need to be careful that we don't do that. However, the Bible is full of examples of people fasting in different ways and for different reasons, and I don't believe that the heart of God about the value of it as a spiritual discipline uh, has, has ever changed. We have no evidence whatsoever anywhere in the scriptures that the practice of fasting uh, is something that God's people should have uh, abandoned, moved away from, or even de-emphasized uh, in the way I think oftentimes we do. I think it's a good, gracious gift to us. We often think of it as a big bummer uh, and something to avoid, but it's really for our good, as is everything God has given us. Um, and so, I'll just give you a few uh, of what I'm talking about. As when I said the Bible's full of examples of people fasting in different ways and for different reasons, and that's key. I want you to remember that. When it comes to fasting, in a spiritual sense, there's always a reason for it. There's a purpose behind it. We don't just not eat uh, and think that that's going to do something. There's, there's always a purpose. So in Matthew 4, Jesus fasts for 40 days. Um, how many of you have fasted for 40 hours? Yeah, a couple of you, okay. But most of us, we struggle around hour four, right? Jesus went 40 days, all right? But here's what's interesting. If you look at Matthew 4, it says he, he, uh, he fasted for 40 days and he was hungry. It doesn't say that he was thirsty. And so from, from this and uh, from other examples in the Bible, we see that the, 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 primary, uh, the primary mode that people are in for fasting the way it's most commonly practiced is to abstain from food. Typically, people will take water still, uh, but they will not eat food. Part of that has to do with just the way that God made our bodies. You last about three days without water, and start, stuff starts not working right. You start to break down. There are uh, a couple of biblical examples, one being Moses on the mountain said he didn't eat or drink for 40 days. Um, however, that was a special event where God must have done something supernatural so that Moses' kidneys didn't shut down uh, after day four, right? And so uh, it is not advisable for you to say, I'm not going to try to eat or drink anything for 40 days. Uh, that's not a normative pattern we see throughout the scriptures. It did happen a couple times. Also, Elijah says he, was, he, he ran from one place to another. He was traveling, says that he, he went 40 days didn't eat or drink, but uh, these, these are just a couple examples where God must have done something supernatural. And unless you are very sure that God has both called you and is going to equip you for that, uh, and, uh, and, you know, I would, I would even run it by somebody you trust has a Bible and loves you and also hears the voice of the Lord, you know, because maybe you just drank some bad Kool-Aid and you're like, I'm doing a 40-day fast with nothing. It's going to be awesome. You might be high, like something might have happened. You know, I don't know. Maybe you got a bacteria and you're just not thinking right. So, just don't do that, uh, and if you really think God wants you to, find somebody <laughs> and run it by him. Just, you know, maybe a doctor, anybody, just somebody else. Don't do it on your own. Okay, hallelujah. 
you guys hear about that lady? This has nothing to do with anything. Some lady just won 100 grand because she claimed she got locked in her storage locker for 63 days uh, and nobody let her out. So I guess she had like some juice and crackers in there and apparently made it, but that was not a fast, does not qualify. So just so you know, uh, she, was, she was not doing that for any spiritual purpose. It sounds like a scam to try to make 100 grand, which I guess it worked. So Also don't do that. That would not be Christ-like and or uh, integrity filled in any way. The purpose of Jesus going out to fast in the wilderness, the Bible says he was, he was pulled out there to be tempted by the devil, uh, and that happened after, towards the end of the fast. And so that's, you know, that's when the devil's saying, hey, turn these stones into bread. You've got to be hungry, uh, this and that. And so we see that uh, this was right after Jesus' baptism. He does, he, he's called into the wilderness uh, by the Holy Spirit, does this 40-day fast, tempted by the devil, and then steps kind of onto the scene, begins to really fully walk in his earthly ministry. And so we see that that time uh, was used to prepare Jesus, strengthen Jesus by the power of the Spirit and through uh, this process of fasting for his ministry uh, and also for doing battle with the devil. And so uh, it's interesting. Oftentimes people avoid fasting because they're like, well, won't you get weak? And, and, and I'm not saying that if you've never gone any stretch of time without food that you may not your body may not rebel and be like, hold on, what's up? Get me a chalupa, right? Like that might happen and you might feel faint for a minute or whatever. But what I'm saying ultimately is there, there, there is, Jesus got strength from this process of 40 days without food, of, of letting, you know, the disciples showed up one time and, and brought him some food thinking he would be hungry. And he said, you guys don't understand. I got food that you don't know about to do the will of my father, right? And so it's, there, there is nourishment, and there is, by the power of the Spirit, we can, we can be sustained, and uh, we, we don't need as much food as we think we do. Um, so Jesus exhibits that, that normative pattern of fasting that's abstaining from food, but he was obviously drinking things, because if he hadn't been, he would have been real thirsty after 40 days, too. So he was strengthened for ministry. Um, Esther, in the book of Esther, she called a three-day total fast, and this is right before she went in before King Xerxes. So just quick, in case you're not familiar with the story, um, there, was, uh, there was a guy that wanted to kill all the Jews, and uh, basically Esther was, was brought in to be a wife of King Xerxes, and uh, back in that day, you didn't, you didn't just walk in before the king. You didn't come before the king unless you were invited, and so her plan was uh, this guy's going to kill all my people, so I'm going to go in before the king. And, and she says something pretty, pretty. I mean, people are like, oh, the, the Bible makes it look like women are weak. They haven't read the book of Esther because Esther's like, all right, here's, what's, here's what we're going to do. She tells her uncle Mordecai, okay, get all, get all the Jews together, everybody in Susa that's there. We're, I want you to fast for three days. I'm going to fast for three days. My, all my attendants are going to fast for three days. We're not going to eat or drink anything. We're going to trust God and believe God. Then I'm going to go before King Xerxes and I'm going to tell him what's going on. I'm just going to boldly walk right in there, and if I perish, I perish. Woo! You want to talk about somebody bad. She didn't care. She was about to do whatever it took so that God's people could be saved. But the bottom line is she called a fast in preparation for that. Okay, so what do we see there? We see that in that example and in other times, people knowing that uh, they were about to come up against something big, they were about to get in, in some type of big situation where they really needed God to come through. It's like they were going to step into a situation, and some of you have never done this, and we need to do this more. We need to ask God to put us in these really uncomfortable spots where if, if I take this step and God doesn't show up, I'm in super big trouble. And that's what she did. And so they fasted. 
for three days before that in faith. And if you know the story, she goes in, talks to Xerxes, uh, finds favor with him. And then uh, the guy was going to hang Mordecai, but he ends up hanging himself. And so God's justice and retribution is done. But they fasted in preparation for that, that event. Um, Daniel fasted certain foods like meat and sweet delicacies. Um, and so we, we see that it's not just drinking water and abstaining from food, but there's variations also in this overall idea of fasting. And so uh, there, there are, unfortunately, I think people have probably marketed it, and there's people selling a little book that tells you how to do the Daniel fast now, which is basically eat celery, carrots, and vegetables and whatever, and don't eat meat and sweet stuff. So there you go. I saved you the money on the book. Uh, hey, do you guys like on social media? <laughs> that happened? I'm terrible. So like, People now have these videos that just go on and on and on. It's like the, the, the typing's going kind of slow. It's got images in the back, and they're leading you on, and it's so frustrating. But what people have started to do now, they're trying to, they'll suck you into this thing. It takes five minutes to get to the point. But what people will do is watch the video, and then they'll go straight to the comments and like tell you, wait, wait for these three belly-busting foods or whatever it is, and then someone will go in the comments and put it, you know, it's, it's pomegranates, avocados, and cabbage, or whatever the thing is, right? And so... And then there's like a thousand comments after that of people being like, you are the real MVP. I mean, people are just celebrating. Like, this guy has saved the world, made world peace happen. All the puppies are saved. Like, this, so that's really amazing. And that's what I just did for you with the Daniel Fast. The Daniel Fast is eat vegetables and nothing else, okay? So what I'm trying to get is, no, I'm just kidding. I don't care. Uh, so Daniel did that. Uh, God, God showed up for him in that. Um, Another example of fat, God required all of Israel to fast on the Day of Atonement. The entire Day of Atonement, uh, people fasted, and that was more of a uh, kind of a solemn solitude and, and everybody kind of being uh, brought to this place of awareness of what we're paying attention to, right? And so all of us together, they were, they were, they were fasting together, remembering the Day of Atonement, which is this, this idea that uh, you know, God had set up with the people of Israel. Uh, this, this once a year where the high priest goes in and, and basically makes atonement for the sins of the people. It was the, the system with the tabernacle and the sacrifices. You got the two goats and, and the whole situation, all, of course, pointing forward and, and foreshadowing uh, the ultimate atonement, which would come in Christ. And so th- this, is, this is just a few examples of fasting throughout the Bible. And, and it really, these, these types and different fasts with, with different purposes, but the whole point is every time someone was fasting, there was a point. Uh, there was a purpose, something they were seeking for, believing for, uh, repenting for sometimes, right? Uh, there's times when David said, I humbled myself and fasted. I fasted until my eyes were sunk in my face it, it, as a part of repentance and just acknowledging my sin and mourning over my sin, uh, sometimes mourning over the sin of others. Uh, just, just not eating, just not eating is not fasting, Okay. We are talking about abstaining from food for spiritual purposes. There's a purpose for it, right? So you, you know, you doing that uh, Hollywood cabbage diet for three days is not fasting, all right? Because you're trying to have a six-pack. That's not the same thing. We're talking about denying ourselves for specific... There's two words that when you put them together sound like what I just said. Specific spiritual purposes. I had like spiritual going. I don't know what that was, so... I'm not even fasting, so it's not that. I don't know. I'm going to this week, though, and hopefully you are too. Ha ha. All right. Um, so 
another example, so to, to seek guidance is another thing. So in Judges 20, uh, Israel fights two battles with an enemy. They get their, their tails whooped. The, the third time, they, they fast and they pray before God and they ask for discernment. Lord, tell us what it is you would have us to do. And he says, then after they fast and after they slow down and listen well, uh, they gain the discernment and, and God says to them, go and I'll be with you. And then they win the third time. Uh, sometimes to express grief, people fasted in the Bible. Jonathan fasted uh, as he grieved over the way Saul treated David. It says he didn't eat. He was so grief-stricken over that. And then David fasted when Saul and Jonathan were killed in the battlefield. Uh, that was kind of a weird family dynamic going on there. But ultimately, uh, the point is there are times in the Bible where people just out of, in a way to express their grief, they would fast. Uh, to express Repentance, when Jonah goes after the whole whale experience, the big fish experience, right? Uh, he goes and he, and he actually does what God was trying to get him to do the whole time, which is preaches to Nineveh. Well, when, when the words of Jonah get to Nineveh, the king comes up off his throne, takes off his robes, covers himself in sackcloth, sits in the dirt, and says, nobody is eating anything, even the animals, and puts sackcloth on them. He was so broken, and he was brought to such a place of deep repentance as Jonah preached uh, the good word of the righteousness of God, and, and, and that, that just hit the Ninevites, um, starting with the king. And so everybody fasted, including the animals. Um, I, I'm not going to advocate for you trying to make your animals fast. Um, we're not going to try to recreate the, the Nineveh experience, so you can not have to worry about muzzling your, your, your pets, uh, your kitties and dogs. Um, so that was to express repentance. Um, another way... And another purpose, and I, I would say, to me, I would put this as one of the, the primary purposes of fasting, especially for our intents and purposes, would be to deny the flesh. What do I mean when I say that? That sounds kind of weird. Well, uh, we believe that we are not a body. We have a body. We believe that the ultimate essence of who we are is spirit, and it's eternal, but we do still have a body. And receiving grace through faith in Christ alone, receiving the mercy of God, the redemption of God, the change that happens when we become a new creation or a new creature in Christ, as the, as the Word of God promises us is true, doesn't eliminate the totality of the sin nature that we fight against. And so there, there are those that, that have preached and, and even been, been prominent throughout church history and said that if you try hard enough, uh, that you can become perfect like Christ, and that we, we don't believe that's true. Part of the reason is uh, Romans 7, for example, when Paul talks about this tendency that he has, he's like, listen, I, I'm still dealing with the effects of the fact that I have this mortal flesh that is tainted by sin. He said, Here's, how does that work out? It works itself out like this. I end up doing what I don't want to do all the time, and I end up not doing what I want to do all the time. Like ultimately my greatest desire is to serve Jesus, be like Jesus, bring glory to Jesus with all I do. But sometimes I don't. Can anybody relate to Paul? Right? And so we're talking about Paul here. <laughs> we're talking about Paul here. Um, those of you that couldn't relate to him in that moment either have fallen asleep, weren't listening, or you're just not that aware of yourself. Because we all from time to time, if we're honest do the things we don't want to do and don't do the things we do want to do as it pertains to godliness and being like Jesus. And so Paul, uh, the apostle that wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, planted much of uh, the early church. Uh, if he was having that struggle, surely we are going to as well. 
And, but part of how we fight that battle with that, that part of us that is flesh, that part of us that does still desire sinful things contrary to the good word of God, uh, is, is to fast, is to deny our flesh. Uh, it's funny, one of the books I was reading in preparation for this, it said, uh, he was talking about kind of as you go along and, and, and fasting and getting to larger numbers of days, like you, you might get to a point where you're sitting there trying to work and all you can hear is the growling of your stomach. And basically what he said is, it was, it was, it was really a deep thought. He said, you need to tell your stomach to shut up. <laughs> Not that deep, but at the end of the day, like we are oftentimes, and I don't think we realize to the degree we are ordered around by our bodies. Our flesh pretty much tells us what's going on and what's going to happen, right? When you're going to eat, when you're going to sleep, when you're going to, your, your body dictates a lot. And I think many times we don't understand how beholden we are to certain urges that we don't have to just be enslaved to whatever your body feels like doing at any given time. Uh, that the power of, by the power of God and with the help of his Holy Spirit, we can, we can subdue the flesh, we can master the flesh, and we can tell our body what's going to happen. Now, that doesn't mean you can not eat in perpetuity or not sleep. Uh, that, that would be ridiculous, and we're not trying to do that. But the point is, part of how, and, and I think in Romans 7, it's, it's talking about just denying the flesh. And so this is where I would talk about opening up the gates a little bit away from just the standard idea. Overall, biblically, fasting is, is abstaining from food. We, we need to say that, and that is the normative pattern. I think that's a part of it. And I think we, there's great value in fasting that way. Now, understanding that part of the value of fasting is to deny the flesh and put the flesh in check... I think opens the gate for fasting in other ways aside from food. And, and there's a biblical example for this as well. If you go to 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is talking about marital relations. Um, in, in, in the sensual sense, right? He's talking about all of those things, right? like, like how Marvin Gaye talks about it, but clean, right? So basically what he says is you, you should not deny one another unless... It's for a time uh, specifically set aside for prayer. And so his point there is that you could deny your flesh sexual gratification within marriage for a time in seeking God in prayer for discernment or whatever it is, breakthrough, whatever you're looking for. And so that right there shows you that this principle translates over of denying your flesh. And let me just say this. If you're not married, you, you are not fasting Sex, okay? You don't get to have any, okay? Because you're not married. Sex is a wedding gift from God to his children. It's safe and beautiful and wonderful inside of the bounds of covenant marriage. Outside of that, it brings death, destruction, and uh, all kinds of bad stuff. And so uh, you, don't, you don't get any You're like, well, I haven't had sex all year. If you're not married, you get no brownie points for that, okay? Like, no, none. Okay, so uh, Paul opened it up to sex inside of marriage, that you can abstain from that, uh, kind of dedicating yourself to, to prayer for a time. Um, and he says that's the only time. I'll just say that too. This isn't a marriage class, but that's the only time you should uh, deny one another or abstain from that because if you aren't careful about that, it says the devil will get a foothold and there will be temptation and uh, bad things can happen on the other side. So uh, there you go. Um, but I was so he opens it up to sexuality. I think in our day, a couple things I would mention that I think 
would be helpful for us to lay down for the subduing of our flesh would be things like media consumption. I think we are addicted to uh, information in its many forms, right? That it just, and we are constantly bombarded with it, whether it's through uh, visual, right? Whether it's internet, TV, radio, uh, there is definitely something to be said for intentional times of solitude and silence when you're not consuming what it is the world's trying to feed you. Uh, and I think fasting that for a certain amount of time would be beneficial for your soul and tell your flesh to shut up because you might be used to that background noise. Many of you, if you just get quiet for a minute, you're going to last about five minutes. You're going to get super nervous, not going to know what to do with your hands, and you're going to be real, I don't know, whoa, 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 I got to turn something on. I got to have something happening. Um, and, and that is a sickness that we have, and it would be good for us to uh, petition the Lord to help us, to be able to be sitting there silent with our thoughts, to be able to pray uh, for long amounts of time and not feel nervous. Uh, I would also say technology. I think it would be very helpful uh, if we, sh- I'm going to say this, don't get nervous, if we shut the phone off. <gasps> yeah, all the way off. What if someone calls me? Listen, man, do you understand? It's only in the last 10, 12 years that there was this expectation of everybody that you have to be able to be contacted at any given second for anything whatsoever, right? Like, it's okay. If you need to do the old, I'm going to be off the grid for a minute, you know, post it on whatever and let people know, man, I'm, I'm just saying it would be, I, I am 100% certain it would be good for us to intentionally take moments where we are not enslaved to that technology and we're not jumping at every notification that comes across whatever the device is. Uh, I believe fasting those things intentionally, uh, even for a little bit, would be good. Just Even if it's an hour, just that you can say, you are not God and you do not own me and I don't have to listen to you all the time, and set that thing down. Put it under a pillow, stick it under all your socks in the drawer, do whatever you got to do so you're not you know, over there tweaking without it, but give it to somebody, have them lock it in something, man. Um, whatever it takes. But we got we to gotta fast that stuff every once in a while. It's good. It'd be good for us. So another reason for fasting in the Scriptures we see is to deny the flesh. I think that's real important for us. I think all of us, let, let, let me hear you say yes or no. Do you think there'd be any benefit whatsoever to your life in godliness and you becoming more like Jesus if you denied your flesh more often than you do right now? Is there any benefit to that? Let me hear you. Yes or no? Okay, so good. We're all in agreement. Or, or if you shrunk down so, so you didn't have to be accountable to that, I understand. But most of you, at least, I got you. Okay, so we're in agreement. We need to deny our flesh because our flesh thinks it's the boss and it's not. The Holy Spirit... King Jesus is the boss. Amen. Uh, Another reason for fasting is to express love and worship to God. There's a woman named Anna in Luke 2. Uh, She gets a kind of a cameo appearance around the birth of Christ, but the Bible says that she, without ceasing, was in the temple. Uh, It says that she was a widow, and basically from that time on, she spent the better part of her life in the temple fasting and praying constantly. And I don't I'm not going to stretch and say that it was, it was simply only that that allowed her to be a part of what she was a part of, but the fact that she was a devoted woman fasting and praying, spending much of her life doing that, she got to be a part of the birth story of Christ, which is like pretty cool, right? 
got a mention and everything, like Luke to put her name in there. So that's, that's pretty cool. But anyways, she, the, the Bible gives this sense that uh, she was a very worshipful, uh, committed woman. And so fasting can be just a way for us to express love and worship to God, just to deny ourselves and to say, Lord, uh, you're worth this. And uh, to say it in a way that maybe sometimes our words fall short of expressing. I hope you've found yourself at a place at some point in your life of trying to tell God how much you love him and how good he is and you found that words failed you. I hope you've been there. And what I'm saying is by spending some time fasting uh, and praying, you can, you can sometimes declare some of those things that you just can't quite verbalize because let's be honest, English and any other language that man has cobbled together falls far short of being able to accurately describe the glorious beauty and wonder of our God. Amen. Uh, Another reason for fasting is to sharpen our prayer and to sharpen our discernment. We talked about that a little bit earlier with the guys uh, praying fasting before the battle to get an answer from the Lord. I don't know if I said enough about that. Many of you have spent a lot of time frustrated feeling like you haven't got an answer from the Lord. And I need to say this clearly. Uh, When we fast, what we're never going to do is get God to do something he wasn't otherwise going to do. Does that make sense? Fasting is not like, that's not, um, you know, the way we put God in a kimura and bend his shoulder out of socket so that he then has to do what we asked him to do. And I've heard people teach that way, that if you pray certain prayers long enough and hard enough, or if you fast long enough and hard enough, then God is obligated to do whatever you are asking him to do. Ultimately, what fasting does is it positions us in a better place to receive what it is God is already doing and or for us to hear if what he's doing doesn't line up with what we wish was happening so that we can get humble and line up with what we want with what he's doing. Amen. And that's what we need. Humility understands, a humble person understands, sometimes I'm going to need to just have discernment about what God's doing and realize it might be different than what I think should happen in this moment. What should happen or when it should happen? Come on, y'all. How many of you have been tempted to shake your fist at Jesus because you think something should happen or it hasn't happened yet, right? It's, It's timing and all of that. Ultimately, fasting puts us in a place where it puts us in a position to discern, to hear God's will better. Uh, and, and I think also to sharpen our prayers. It brings an intensity to our prayers. We see that throughout the scriptures. John Calvin also said, uh, basically, I'm paraphrasing, but John Calvin said, anytime we're praying about something big, we should fast as well. Anytime we're bringing some big deal before the Lord, he's, John Calvin said, I think you should, I think you should fast as well. Uh, he's joined by many other, uh, Wesley said similar things, guys that like made an impact for the kingdom in their life. These guys were disciplined guys. These guys were people that, and, and for them, fasting was a, a vibrant part of how they related to God. Go back and, and read, man. Over and over again, you'll see that come up. Um, there, was, there was this willingness to deny themselves so that. They could bring glory to God so that they could hear his voice, so that they could be submitted to his will, and so they could bring glory to his name. The the, the reality, I I gave you a lot of biblical examples there. I gave you a lot of different reasons to fast, and there are many reasons. There's many. Uh, We can also see, I think, from where we started, that Jesus 
assumed that his followers would fast. Again, I'm not saying that he gave us a command, but I think Jesus assumed we would want to fast as a result of his incredible mercy and the beauty of his gospel and the working of his spirit in our heart. That it, if, if I, I don't want to put words in Jesus' mouth, but the way he talked about it and didn't talk about it, it makes me think he just assumed he didn't need to command us. That we would want to participate in this beautiful freedom gift that we can fast. You understand why I'm calling it a freedom gift? If you were not made free, half of us having been made free from the law of sin and death by the power of the gospel, if we're being totally honest, even with that, we don't want to fast. Right? Is that right? You can be honest. Not, most of the time I don't really want to, but here's what I'm saying. Through, through this sermon and through us pressing into these things, talking about the fact that I, I believe Jesus' vision for his church is that we would be a fasted people. That would be a part of the way that we relate to him and the way we relate to one another and the way we accomplish the mission he's given us in the world, that we would have a desire. And I'm hoping that through walking through these things, fasting becomes less of this kind of mysterious, weird, legalistic thing that only super Christians do. And we see that it's, it's something that's been given to the church as a gift and it's something that we should willingly participate in and we should see. The question is, you will not do this. You will not incorporate this beautiful gift into your life if you cannot by faith believe that abstaining from those things and denying your flesh is going to lead to something more beautiful than the, than the alternative. If you can't come to at least try, maybe you haven't done it yet, maybe you haven't walked that out, maybe you haven't fasted, and maybe you haven't seen the beauty of obedience to Christ in that way, maybe you don't have that experience yet, but I'm asking you to, to, to just let, your, let the, your mind's eye open up and, and just think about the possibility of, if, if I participate in this gift, in this privilege, can I at least see, could I imagine that it would be more beautiful for me to abstain from food than, than to, you know, go smash a crave case or whatever I was about to do other than that, right? Like, could, could something beautiful happen out of that? Could God do something in me? Could I hear something from him? Could I understand? Could, could, could revelation come and hit my frame? Could I be humbled? Could I be changed? Could I be grown into further Christ-likeness as a part of this process? And could that be more beautiful and joy-filled than anything I could have come up with at any banquet? The answer, the answer is yes. The real answer is yes. The question is, can you believe it? Will you believe it? Will you move towards that by faith? Will you see that God will be faithful in it? And that's my question, will you? And so I'm, I'm asking everyone to fast in some way this week for the purpose of prayer and to subdue our flesh to the glory of God. I told you, if we fast with no purpose, if we fast just because we want to see if we can or uh, you know, everyone else is doing it, so I guess I have to because I'm a legalist, right? Like, if, if there's no purpose behind it, then we should not do it. If we're not moving forward into it in faith, then we should not do it. Uh, there are people that have tried to put arbitrary numbers onto fasting and, and, and like, dictate its effectiveness by that, right? That was a really clunky way to say that. Basically, there's people that will tell you, if you fast 40 hours, God really likes it. If you fast seven days, he really likes it. And if you do 40 days, he really, really, really likes it. Okay? Now, is there, is there potential, I believe, if you're empowered by the Spirit of God and called to do it, that if you fast for a longer duration, there can be a more intense acceleration of what those things God is doing in you? 
that, 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 could, that could lead to a greater growth or a breakthrough, an answer from Jesus? Yes, I, I think it can. Uh, and I've known many people that's been true of them. But we don't want to fix these arbitrary numbers to it and try to lay that on people as a yoke of, well, if you don't go at least a week, then why even do it? Because, you know, you're not obviously that disciplined or whatever it is. Okay, so basically I'm just asking everyone to fast in some way this week for the purpose of prayer and for the purpose of subduing our flesh to the glory of God. Um, and so when I say that, the, the other things I said... I mean, I think we could fast technology and media and other things, but I'm asking you that if you are medically able, I'm, gonna, I'm asking you to not put some food in your mouth for a while at some point this week for the purpose of prayer. And this, this whole sermon series on spiritual disciplines, it flows out of a couple weeks where I talked about revival and the need for sovereign move of God among his people. And I, and I believe all of that ties together. I'm tr- guys, I'm trying to call us to deep, man. I don't want to do shallow, surface-level, arm-floaties forever Christianity, man. I want to go, go deep with a group of people, and, and I, don't, I don't want to miss good things that God has for us, man. So let's jump in there, and I'm asking you at some point this week, I don't care if you miss one meal, three meals, I don't care if you go a full day, you and Jesus talk about it, but I'm asking you to do something. I'm asking you to fast something this week. For the purpose of prayer and to subdue your flesh. And when you're fasting, I'm asking you to be prayerful. I'm asking you to be intentional about it. I'm asking you to pay attention to how much your body screams at you. And you go on ahead and scream right back at it. Amen? Tell it to be quiet. It's not in charge. Holy Ghost is in charge. King Jesus is in charge of us. We're spiritual people. Amen? So I'm asking you to do that. I want to just talk about a couple practicalities, okay? First of all, if you've, <laughs> if you've never fasted four hours, do not try to do 40 days, okay? Just flat out. Don't do it, all right? Uh, there, there's wisdom in, in starting small. So if you have not fasted before, you should probably do a meal, maybe two meals at a time. Uh, and, and, and if you have a desire to build up to more, then praise God for that. But you should, you should do it in a process. Pay attention to how you you feel you need to take into account things like uh, physical demand of your job or whatever you're doing. Uh, one time, my pastor one time called a fast, and he said a lot of the things I'm saying right now, but I was young, and I'm like, oh yeah, watch this, I'm about to fast, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm going with seven days, water only, sup. So day five, and I'm working hard, like I, you know, very physically demanding and I'm five days deep, and I find myself, I'm, I'm in this apartment in Dayton trying to remodel it. And I'm, I don't know what was happening physically, but I was doubled over in pain. Like, I felt, it felt like my stomach was going to gnaw through my spine and then come out and just, you know, take over. And I remember I was trying to only drink water, and there was another guy there. I think he was a Muslim, if I remember right. This story's getting really weird, isn't it? But I was working with him. And he's like, I think he had fasted before was the point. And he's like, man, you need to drink some juice or do something. I think you're about to die. And I was like, all right, cool. So I drank some juice, man. And I swear to you, like, I drank it. I felt it go down my throat. And when it hit my stomach, you guys remember the Sarlacc from Return of the Jedi? Like that fangorious beast that came out of the desert? It felt like my stomach was like, like it opened up and took the juice. Anyways, I went too hard too fast. And I messed up. So... 
and, and, and it, I didn't prove anything to anybody other than, you know, that I was a fool. So just be, you, use wisdom, and especially if you are diabetic, if you have heart issues, if you've got anything as far as that is concerned medically, then you may very well not be able to skip meals and it be medically okay for you. And so in no way do I want you to leave here and go, okay, well, pastor asked everybody to uh, fast, so I'm just, you know, I'm going for it and going to trust the Lord, and then you end up passed out behind the wheel or whatever. That's not what we're talking about. Use wisdom. If you're not sure, if you've got medical stuff and you're not sure, talk to your doctor. You know, there's, there's other things you can do. There's other ways you can deny the flesh uh, if, if it's just not wise for you to not take food. But you can also obviously modify, right? Whereas if, if, uh, if your lunch is, you know, normally includes some, some little Debbie cakes and some potato chips, right? You can switch that out for some celery and some carrots like Daniel did and do a variation of that, right? Maybe you, you do need to take in calories or certain amounts of sugar for diabetes, but you could, you could change up the foods and in so doing, you're still telling your flesh, listen, uh, you know, little Debbie will make it without us. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to eat some vegetables this week, right? Okay, so I'm, I'm just saying, be smart, think about it, use wisdom, but I'm, I'm asking you to do something. Regardless of, of, of limitations you may have medically, I'm asking you to do something. Deny your flesh somehow to the glory of God and for the purpose of prayer. Um, when, when you're doing this, I, I just want to ask us to be praying in general just for the health of our congregation. There's so many people struggling with sickness. Uh, and and let, let's just join in faith together as we go through this fast and just ask God to, for his healing virtue to touch us and help us so that we can be at full strength uh, for the accomplishing of his, his mission. Um, and the last thing I just, want to, I just want to mention to us is, is I believe every one of the spiritual disciplines we're going to talk about, it, it, it ties directly to the beauty, the truth, and our commitment to the gospel. So how does fasting, how does abstaining from food or denying our flesh, how does that remind us of the gospel? And I'm saying this to you because as we're doing it, I want us to be thinking about the gospel. I don't want us to be thinking about how awesome and disciplined we are. I don't want us to get into that pharisaical trap of starting to think, well, I'm pretty spiritual. Three days without food. Right? We don't want to do that. So, as we're fasting, what we, what we want to think about as we're denying our flesh is we want, we want to think about the ultimate example of someone denying their flesh, which I would point to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is when Jesus was so full of anxiety about the upcoming event of his death upon the cross that the Bible says he sweat drops of blood. His flesh did not want to do that. The fleshly part of our Savior had, wanted nothing to do with that cross and all that came with it including separation from the Father, from whom he had never been separated, him taking on all of the wrath of God, him being tortured and humiliated by his very creation. But he told the Father, nevertheless, thy will be done. His flesh didn't win. He walked in the power of the Spirit. And so as, as we fast, I would hope that primarily we are thinking about as we are subduing our flesh, we're doing it by the same, the same spirit. This is what Ephesians tells us. The same spirit that was at work in Christ is at work in us. And so when you're struggling, you're feeling like you can't make it, you can't do it, you probably can't. But the power of Christ in you through his Holy Spirit can. 
And we're sharing, fasting is one way that we share in his sufferings and remind ourselves of the beauty of his gospel. He denied his flesh all the way to death. And so the beauty of the gospel, it, it shines forth in, in, when the people of God are fasted people, are people that do not let ourselves be ruled by sin in the flesh. Praise God that as we deny ourselves, we'll be reminded of the ultimate denial of Christ. My prayer for us is that we would be a disciplined people, that we would be a people marked both by frequent fasting and by fasted lives. All of this would be for God's glory and for our good. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. We thank you for these verses. We thank you, God, for the truth of fasting. We thank you for the beautiful freedom gift of participating in the spiritual discipline of fasting. Thank you, Lord, that it's not some legalistic way for us to show off. Thank you that it it has nothing to do with us necessarily even proving our allegiance to you, but it's a beautiful opportunity for us to participate uh, in the process of becoming more like you. Lord, help us, first of all, uh, as our hearts have been convicted and drawn towards uh, fasting as, as as a part of the life of every Christian, Before that, Lord, what's so important, we need your help with this, is that what we would want to be more than anything is to be like you, Jesus. There's so many other competing affections and things that want our attention, and there's identity markers and things that we want to be. There's things we want to excel at, things we want to be good at. But Lord, above all of that, may the greatest desire we have when it comes to who we are and what we want to be is to be like you, Jesus, our Savior. And Lord, out of that, out of that desire, may, may a humble obedience to these spiritual disciplines, may it flow out of that desire. May we be excited. Lord, I ask for excitement, not just acknowledgement. Lord, I don't want this church to just acknowledge that, yes, we should want to be like Jesus, to nod their heads and add that to the to-do list. Lord, I'm asking for excitement and joy and passion and pursuit of being like you. Lord, may it be a joy-filled experience as we are conformed and transformed into your image by the power of your spirit. Thank you that you've invited us to participate. Thank you that you've given us an opportunity to put up our sail and to receive, Lord, the wind of your glorious grace. Lord, we say to you, blow us where you would. We want to go where you're going. Whatever direction you're headed, that's where we want to be. What you're doing is what we want to be involved in, Lord. Your mission, your kingdom, what you're doing is the greatest thing we could possibly be a part of. We're excited about all that you're doing in the world, in our city, in our church, and in our hearts. And we are thankful, Lord, for your faithful promise to be with us, to never leave us or forsake us, and to continue what you've begun in us. We praise you. We worship you, Lord. Please help us to be a fasted people for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.